All right, and we're, and we're recording. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to the LTP, LTP podcast. Uh, today we have Professor Kieran Kizlaya. How would you? How do you usually introduce yourself? I I, I guess I, I tell people I'm a professor in the math department at UC San Diego. Um, you know, the, 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 let's start from there. I mean, that that uh, I have to confess that telling people that you're a math professor often sort of shuts the conversation down. <laughs> uh, really? <laughs> so I try not to lead with that necessarily, but. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I tell people I'm a professor at UCSD and um, teach in the math department and um, take it from there. So if, if that usually shuts down conversations, what, <laughs> what do you usually try to start with? That? Uh, I, I guess I, I, I might start with other things that I'm interested in. Um, okay, what's you know, I, I mean, of course, math is, is, is something that I'm, uh, is a subject I'm interested in, but I, you know, I also uh, enjoy... Um, you know, music and, and foreign languages and photography and other things. So, uh, you know, games and puzzles. Uh, so sometimes the conversation will be going in one of those directions. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, th I think we've talked about a couple of those. I, I didn't hear you say anything about photography before, though. I've always been wanting to get into it, but... Yeah, I, I got into photography. Originally, I got into photography back when it was film. So this was when I was much younger. Um, and then I, I sort of didn't keep it up for a while, but then once the cameras start, once the cameras went digital, it became much easier. Um, so I got back into it and, uh, it happens that my work involves a lot of travel, obviously not right now, but under normal circumstances, uh, being a, a research scientist, um, of any sort generally means traveling to, give presentations at conferences, to visit with collaborators. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of, of, of travel, uh, both within the country and internationally. So basically, I, whenever I'm going someplace interesting, especially someplace I haven't been, um, I'll grab my camera and take it with me. And uh, I think I've been to maybe 80 countries by now. So I have a lot of pictures of a lot of countries. <laughs> That, that is quite a few. <laughs> and, yeah, I, 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 keep, I keep a lot of pictures on my website, uh, uh, mostly to help me remember places I've been, but mm. you know, I hope other people enjoy them too. It, it is really nice to be able to look back on the stuff that you've traveled to, or, or like when you're watching a show, I don't, I don't know, once we started traveling, we were like, oh, hey, we've been there. <laughs> yeah, it, it really gives you connections with places around the world. Like, um, you know, I was, I think I was watching the finale of The Good Place, which has a scene in Paris. And, you know, I knew exactly where they were because I've been in Paris many times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it gives you a different connection to, to, to seeing a picture of some place or, or seeing video of some place. If, if you've been in that place and, you know, you've been on that street, uh, you, you've been in that neighborhood, you, 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 you know, because places around the world all have their own look. I mean, mm -hmm. just even within the U.S. I mean, the first time I came to California, I remember being struck that, oh, this doesn't look like the East Coast at all. Uh, you know, the houses are much flatter. The, there are palm trees. They're, they're, uh, the streets are, you know, there are these wide boulevards and avenues. And um, yeah, the trees are, besides the palm trees, the other trees are all different. There's eucalyptus. There's, there's all sorts of things that we don't have on the East Coast. Um, and, you know, there's the mission style of architecture and, uh yeah, it, it just so just even going from one part of the U.S. to another, you see these differences, and and, and even more so when you start going uh, outside the U.S. Um, or outside of your own country, if your country is not the U.S. And yeah, and and you bring some of that back with you, of course. You know, uh, travel changes. You know, the person, the traveler, as well as the location. So yeah, you, you come back with some new perspective, and and uh, um, yeah, and then you sometimes recognize that when you're just sitting at home as we all are right now, mm -hmm. uh, consuming, you know, media over uh, through our screens, but we'll see things that we recognize and that connects us both with it, not only with a different place, but also with a different time. Because, you know, so in some cases, that these are places that I went to many years ago. And so it was a different part of my life at that point. Yeah. Well, even, not even that too. It's also, I'm, it's also like when it was built too, like, I remember going to the East Coast and being like, wow, this stuff is pretty old. 
Yeah. Like, cause I'm, cause I'm from the West coast and everything here is relatively new. Yeah. So you go, you go to, to a place coast. like Boston yeah. and you realize, Oh, this, these streets have been laid out this way <laughs> for 300 years. Right. Exactly. It gives you and personal you, perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you go to Europe and then you oh, see, yeah. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> these streets have been laid out for like 500 years or, or, you know, 700 years, or, you know, you go to, you go to Rome and it's like, Oh no, this, this street has been here for 2000 years. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And then you're like, wait a second. We're like, it, we're like babies over here. It's yeah, compared like to everything itself. else. Yeah. So that, that's really cool. I, I definitely had the same exact experience when I went to East coast at first, it, it was really weird when you go to like old places and like you go up the stairs or whatever, and you can feel the, <laughs> You can feel like the groove in it just from yeah like, yeah yeah I think, that's crazy yeah I had a I lived in an apartment in Boston that was built about a hundred years ago and yeah you could tell <laughs> the staircase was sort of rutted um, a little bit because you know it had been in use more or less that long um, yeah and you'll see that in other places where uh, this yeah you'll see that with the staircases or uh, sometimes, I don't know if you see this much in the U.S. I've seen this more in Europe where, like in hmm. the U.K., for example, where you, you go to an old enough building and you see that the glass has, has flowed down because glass is a liquid. So if you put a pane of glass in and you leave it for 150 years, it will, it will flow down. <laughs> and so the glass is thinner at the top and thicker at the bottom. Oh, amazing. Wow. I, I didn't even notice that. But I... I... I guess I must have seen that. I just never noticed it. Yeah, it's uh, it takes a long time for that to happen. So most mo- nowadays, glass doesn't get left in that long. But if you look at especially old church buildings, where they don't tend to change the glass very often, you might see some glass that's more than a hundred years old, and then you might be able to see this. Yeah, there's there's some crazy stuff that's really really old. <laughs> what are the what have been the best places? most picturesque places for you? Oh, with so many places to choose from, it's really hard. Um, That's true. I, I mean, part of what makes them memorable for me is, is when they're really novel. So, um, like, I, I went to South Africa uh, in a couple of years ago. That was my first time being anywhere in Africa. And so that was totally different. Um, um, my sister was living there at the time, so we, I went around th- a little bit with her, and we went to Victoria Falls and and and, and some places in South Africa. And um, yeah, it, it, it I mean, it's so it was so different than you know traveling in Europe or traveling in Asia had been that it really <laughs> stuck that really stuck out for me because of how really different it was. But you know, going to Australia and New Zealand were both have both been really interesting um i really like traveling in in japan uh I, i've been to japan many times and i feel like every time i discover new things there um, my family is from india so that's fascinating for kind of uh its own reasons because i mean I'll, I'll go places that i've been with family but i also go places that you know uh i never i only been by myself um and kind of explore that way um yeah, and you know, I spend a lot of time in Europe, so I know a lot of places in Europe pretty well, and there, there are lots of distinctive spots um, around Europe. Yeah. Uh, have you have you ever done the whole like backpacking through Europe kind of thing? I never did that exactly. When I was in college, I spent a half a year uh, studying in Hungary, so I did I did a little bit of the Ural thing, where I would ride trains. You know, I took the train, to, tra- took the train all the way to Berlin, which took like ten hours, and um, and I went to Poland and and the Czech uh, and uh, Slovakia, um, uh, Austria, Romania. Um, so I saw a lot of Eastern Europe by train. Um, it's it's really cool to be able to go by train versus like yeah trains are i mean trains are a, a totally underrated form of transportation uh, people in the u.s <laughs> that, that you know we don't have a lot of trains that are that that sort of run in useful direction i mean i've taken the train between san diego and los angeles a few times um and it's more useful than people realize but uh and i've taken the train since i lived on the east coast for for a lot of my life taking the train between 
you know, Washington and New York, New York and Boston, um, plenty of times. But um, yeah, we don't have a lot of other uh, train routes that that go through sort of settled areas. And yeah, whereas in, in Europe, it's it's much more normal to take a train, you know, for two or three hours to get from you know one country to another, or <laughs> yeah. you know one major city to another. Um, like in France, basically all of France is connected by train to Paris within about a three-hour trip because of the TGV. And so it's just the most common way that people get around, especially, well, at least if you're going between Paris and somewhere else, is you take the train. You don't, you don't, you don't get on a plane. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, Germany, a lot of, there, there are lots of train routes between major cities. And, and yeah, and you know, Japan, of course, is famous for its bullet trains. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> Japan essentially is like a, almost a one-dimensional country because the island, the main island runs sort of north-south. And so there's a, there's a high-speed train network running all the way from the north uh, of the island to the south of the island. And all the major cities are along a single train route. So it's, it's when I go to Japan, essentially I'll fly to Tokyo and then just take the train no matter where I'm going. Yeah, um, definitely. And it's very pretty. There are some, there are some really scenic spots on those train routes too. Like I forget, I think there's some spot where you get a really great view of Mount Fuji just on the train <laughs> just because yeah, it right? happens to go by and you know, there's a 14,000 foot mountain right behind you. Mm. I, I haven't had the, I haven't been able to ride the bullet train yet, but I, I really want to the next time we go. Just the, just the local, I guess, train system where just from between stops and stuff is, was was astounding to me when we went you just you could pretty much go anywhere with the, with us yeah especially in tokyo and some of the other big cities i mean tokyo more so than any place else it's super <laughs> interconnected by train <laughs> you can get around everywhere and um even if you don't read any japanese most of the stations are labeled in english so if you know where you're trying to get to you can kind of figure out on the train map, what trains you have to take. And okay, you're gonna be in a throng of tens of thousands of people, but <laughs> uh, you'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah, they were, they, were, they were very helpful, even though I didn't speak too much when I, when I first went there. And sometimes they don't speak too much English, but they're still very helpful. In yeah, people, definitely people will want to be helpful even if the, the language skills aren't uh, necessarily available. But you know, that's one of the, one of the one of the adventurous things uh, in a good way about traveling is sometimes you'll find yourself in a place where you just don't have any language uh, to communicate with the local people and but you figure it out somehow <laughs> I, I think <laughs> it's, it's kind of like solving a, a puzzle that okay yeah. i have to get this done i can't use words <laughs> uh, at least not not complete sentences but you know, I know that the people around me are intelligent human beings who, 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 you know, do certain things and can figure out from context what's going on and, and how do I manage the situation that way. Yeah, I, I, think when, I think when you're learning a language or I think at the beginning, it's kind of like, it's just this arcane, like mysterious, like encryption or whatever, but it's really- Yeah, especially if you have one of those teachers that insists on day one, they walk into the class and they start <laughs> speaking in that language and they, they won't, they don't give you anything in your language and they, they, they want you to just figure it out. You know, like the way a child would when learning language for the first time is that they don't have any words, but they can see what's going on and they're hearing stuff. Um, and okay, you have a bit of an advantage in that you have, you know, a language already. You can sort of use that to, to, to reason out things. But, but yeah, you have to figure out the correspondence between words and things. Um, I mean, first you have to maybe even figure out which ones are the words, right? Because when you hear just a continuous stream of talk, you know, where do the words start and where the words end? Um, this, this, this gave me a lot of trouble the first time I tried to listen to French because oh, French, French has this, yeah, French has this <laughs> phenomenon of liaison where they don't really finish any of the words and they jam them into the next word. So uh, it's kind of hard to pick out individual words until you actually know some words. 
because then you'll know what word they didn't finish saying when they started the next word. Right? That, that was always the hardest part for me. And, and sometimes still is with French is just like, they speak fast and they don't they say everything. And, yeah, it's all <laughs> concatenated. So yeah, it's, it can be hard to pick out an individual word unless you can put the entire sentence together in your head, which I find much more challenging than like when I was learning Spanish, I didn't have this problem because I could pick out words. So I could at least work from the point of view of, okay, okay, here's a word. I understand this word and this word. And so I can probably guess that the other words are, you know, the other things that are needed to make the sentence grammatical, like a verb and a subject. Yeah. Versus, okay. So I, I didn't know how I, I've never actually studied Spanish, but glad to know that they don't <laughs> cut out half their words. <laughs> it depends who your Spanish, uh, you know, the speaker is. So, um, you know, the, because Spanish is spoken in many places around the world by people with very different accents. So no, I learned Spanish mostly from teachers from either uh, Cuba or Puerto Rico or Argentina. Um, so, you know, Western Hemisphere. Mm. Um, the first time I went to Spain and I heard, you know, people from Madrid speaking Spanish, I couldn't understand a word of it. <laughs> the, accent, the language is similar. It's mostly the same. It's, you know, about as similar as American English versus British English. But the accent, I found, is a lot more different than between, you know, U.S. English and British English. So I, I, I was completely lost at first. I got used to it, but yeah. I still find it easier to listen to Spanish speakers from the Western Hemisphere. Right. Yeah. I guess that makes sense, right? I, man, I even sometimes when I'm watching a show or something, I I, I don't understand what the British English is, so I, I can't imagine sometimes doing other accents for other languages. Yeah, I mean, of course, it, 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 even in English, we have more choices than that, right? Because, okay, you go to Australia, that's pretty different. You go to New Zealand, that's even more different. Uh, you go to South Africa, that's a little different. You go to India, where, you know, which is one of the largest population of English speakers in the world, but most of them speak it as a second language. Um, a few speak it natively, but but there is a there is an Indian accent of English or a variety of them really. But um, and those are pretty different as well. Um, I mean, you could you could certainly have native speakers of English from different places that can't understand each other. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Even though it's nominally one language, mm -hmm. there there are quite a lot of differences. I th I mean, there's people who study like those like individual ones i think right yeah i mean those are those are those sort of regional ver versions of of english you know have enough differences between them that you can uh yeah people will will compile like lists of of words that have different uses in american english versus british english or cases where the word is is just a, it's just a different word that's used in britain versus the us um and yeah, the first time one goes to Britain, it's helpful to know a few of these just so that uh, you don't get completely confused about <laughs> yeah, basic conversation. to everything as something else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I, are you learning any languages right now? Uh, I've been I've been doing Mandarin uh, since actually before the pandemic started. Um, but I really got into it once the pandemic started. So I, you know, I have one of these language apps. Uh, this is Duolingo that I use on my phone. And so I'll just do, uh, you know, five minutes of Chinese a day. And I don't know how much you really get out of five minutes a day, but, you know, I feel like I, I it makes a lot more sense, at least just like basic sentences make a lot more sense. You know, like I can, I can see like how a sentence is put together, even if I would have a lot of trouble putting together even a basic sentence myself. Yeah, yeah. I think once you learn, once you learn the basic structure and I guess syntax of a language, it, it gets a lot easier. Yeah, I mean, it gets it gets to the point when you can pick up words that sort of there's a there's a there's a sort of changeover point when you really are just trying to figure out what's going on at some global level versus okay, now I understand how to put a sentence together with a blank. You know, you can once you know how to sort of construct a sentence that has a blank in it and you can fill the blank in and say a noun. Now you can make lots of sentences. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think for at least the like the Eastern Asian languages, some like my sisters when they see me studying or something, they're like, "But how do you know when the word ends? There's no spaces or anything." But so right. sometimes they're really different. But you, you you do get the hang of it relatively fast, I think. Yeah, that, like does it right? This concept of of words uh, of having kind of discrete words that are separate isn't natural in all languages. I mean, in some languages, it's very natural because you you kind of do stuff to a word and then, you know, that, you know, you add a prefix or a suffix to it. And then that kind of clearly means that you're separating it from another word. But yeah, in like in Chinese, when you read Chinese, you just see a string of characters. And, you know, in context, when you put certain characters next to each other, they, 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 they kind of, their meanings uh, come together and they become a, a new word. But is that really a new word or is it, you know, there's a, there's a sort of semantic question about, you know, where does one word stop and another word start? When you have two things that you put together, is that two different words that you're using them as a phrase and that phrase has a meaning separate from the two words? Or have you made a compound word? Well, that's not a well-defined question in, in a language like Chinese because there's, there's just no separation between words. Yeah, that's, that's true. And, and that's part of the reason why I, I think I've, I never did get into learning like Chinese because I was like, well, how does that work? I mean, each, you learn each character, I guess, but is each yeah. character considered? And you learn, you yeah. also learn, I mean, you learn groups of characters that have meaning as, as words. I mean, you know, in practice, you, you, you know, the way you, the way you think about it for yourself is, you know, you'll have sets of words in your head that have meaning. Maybe you don't just, maybe you think of it as a word or maybe you think of it as a phrase, but you know, you don't, after you kind of learn some individual characters, you also learn them in, in clusters um, that mean something. And so you kind of use those like words, but are you really using them like words? Or are you using them like set phrases? Well, that's neither here nor there in a language like Chinese. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's all part of the process is you start with kind of building blocks um, which in Chinese are very discreet. They are individual characters that have a pronunciation and some kind of a basic meaning. And then you start putting them together. Um, and in some ways it's easier than other languages because for the most part, nothing funny happens when you put those characters together, right? You don't have uh, morphology as much as you do in uh, you know, English where, okay, you add, you, you put a suffix on something, but you might change the pronunciation or you might change the spelling. Um, uh, now in Chinese, when you put two things together, they, they stay phonetically separate. So at least that doesn't, that doesn't complicate matters. Yeah. There's not you a bunch just, of- You can then just words. worry about the meaning. Mm, that's interesting. Well, how about the phonetics? I, I hear that's a hard part. That is definitely hard for for somebody not used to a language like that. Yeah, that that because it's a tonal language. That's the first point. And you know, those of us who 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 grew up speaking non-East Asian languages for the most part aren't used to thinking of 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 the pitch of a word as having something to do with its meaning. Right? When when we speak English, we use intonation not to distinguish between the meanings of different words, but to, you know, create sentence structure. Um, yeah. you know, so my, my, the, my pitch goes down at the end of, the, of a declarative sentence. Uh, but in Chinese, you know, individual characters have pitch, pitches, as some of them go up, some of them go down. Um, and when you actually distinguish words that way, if you change the, if you change the pitch on a syllable, becomes a completely different word. Mm -hmm. um, and it might, you know, sometimes it, it becomes the opposite word. <laughs> it's incredibly right. confusing. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, that is, that is very tricky to get used to. It's, it's, it, 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 I guess you have to first get used to hearing that and then, then you have to start trying to produce it. Um, but even just hearing it, it takes some practice. Yeah, I, I think like, like for me, um, Tagalog, I don't know how tonal it is, but, but like sometimes I would say something and then my grandparents would be like, wait, what did you just say? And, and then they tell me what I just said. And I was like, that's not what I said. <laughs> Which language is this? Huh? Which language are we talking about? Tagalog. In Tagalog. Oh yeah. Is that, does that have a tonal aspect? Maybe. 
There, well, I don't know if it's tonal precisely, but there's stressing the words in a different way creates an entirely different meaning sometimes. Oh yeah, I so. mean, we have a little bit of that in English, but not maybe not so common. Uh, yeah. Oh no, no, no. Like this would be like like it would be a different word. It'd it's a completely different English. word. Yeah. <laughs> not even just like a different meaning of the same of a related. But yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's it's weird. <laughs> yeah. That, that that might make things. Uh, yeah, that, that could make things complicated. Yeah, that's that's kind of why I like, I, I think I gravitated more towards like Japanese and Korean because it was a much easier pronunciation. Yeah, those those languages have very clear phonology. Um, so you can get started and, and Korean even has the advantage that it's all written in a phonetic alphabet. So yes. yeah. if you see it, you can read it out loud. Um, and then you just have to figure out what it means. <laughs> it's kind of the opposite of Chinese that way. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, so. it's all, it, you know, the Chinese writing is all meaning and no, no phonetics at all. And Korean is completely the opposite. Mm. Which, is pretty, which is pretty interesting. I don't know. I, I found this out when we went there. But apparently Korean's like a synthetic language. Like the king ordered it to be made or something like that. I'm the alphabet sure. is definitely that. Um, yeah. yeah. So I gather they, yeah. It, it, so they were using Chinese characters before that, mm. um, which wasn't a really a good fit for the Korean language because um, it's so different from Chinese. Um, so yeah, at some point, uh, whoever was in charge kind of uh, commissioned a, an alphabet to be designed. Um, and yeah, it was actually, um, it, it, it's actually a really interesting alphabet it, 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 that the, the, the characters are designed, um, it, it, the, the design of the, the physical design of the letters of the alphabet has a lot of linguistics built into it. Um, it, it may have been inspired by Sanskrit um, in, in that, because the sort of earliest linguistics that we have is, is sort of ancient, is, there's ancient a lot of uh, text in 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 Sanskrit um, uh, about the linguistics initially of Sanskrit itself, mm -hmm. um, and so like the Sanskrit alphabet is organized in a sort of phonetic way where there's like a five by five table of consonants, um, you know, where you sort of when you go one way, um, you're sort of moving the articulation point of the consonant from back to front in your mouth. Um, and you go the other way and you're, you're changing, uh, what is it? Um, yeah, you're going, you're going from, so yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head, um, but there's sort of two axes on which they, they kind of sort all the consonants. Um, and the, the, the Korean alphabet sort of takes that into account and also takes into account vowel placement. And so the, the symbols for each character are sort of a phonetic, or pictorial representation of, of how you articulate that sound. Yeah, it's, I, it's pretty I, amazing. Yeah, I never thought of it like that, but that's yeah, that's true. The the first, I I guess you could say consonant would be like in the top left, and then the vowel, and then yeah. the ending. Yeah, I, I and like whether it's that, yeah. whether it's sort of a circle or a square has to do with like you know is your mouth rounded or like flat, oh. right? you know this kind of thing. There's 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 some internal logic in that in that which is really interesting. Oh, that's, yeah, that's really cool. I, there, there's so much stuff that you don't know, like. Yeah, it makes me wish I knew yeah. any Korean. I'd be like, I've been to Korea a couple of times and I, I know zero Korean, but, but the, the alphabet is so cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's I want to learn. You, sh you should learn it. It's, it's one of those alphabets. Well, I don't know if there's other alphabets like this, but you could probably pick it up within like a day. Yeah, I mean, the times I've been to Korea, basically, I would spend a week cramming the alphabet so that I could read signs, but then I forget it again. <laughs> you know, because I've only been to Korea maybe three times. So it hasn't come up so much, but. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a fun language. I don't know. Do you watch, uh, watch Korean dramas? <laughs> no, that might be, yeah, I guess uh, if I were, if I were more into, uh, you know, Korean movies or, or K-pop or, or, or this kind of thing uh, I might have more incentive to pick it up. Um, yeah, I haven't even seen Parasite. 
Uh, oh, you have it. That's how out of touch I am with you know Korean cultures. I haven't seen you know their Oscar-winning best picture. Yeah, that's, that's probably something you should watch soon. <laughs> yeah, what, maybe for next time. Been, before before I go to Korea, I'll watch it. Yeah. <laughs> what, what have you been watching? Do you do you watch? What What do you usually do? I don't. I don't tend to watch a lot of TV or movies. Um, yeah, I'm kind of the same way. Yeah, I just, I don't know that that that's not something that I tend to do for for diversion. I mean, I'll I'll watch movies when I'm, I'm traveling because I'll have them on the plane, and I'll sometimes get caught up with movies that way or TV. But um, yeah, I mean, I I, I get I, I subscribe to some music podcasts, and so I, I hear a lot of music that way. But I don't tend to consume a lot of uh tv or movies music podcasts like they put music together or they talk well about yeah it? just like <laughs> mostly the mostly the npr music podcasts like all songs considered and where they they they, they tend to you know showcase new artists or new releases and, and this kind of thing um oh, okay so i just have some idea of what's you know coming out currently oh that's cool i i honestly didn't even know they had that there's, yeah, they have a whole, 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 whole series of music. Oh, wow. Uh, music podcasts with different genres as well. So there's like, um, yeah, there, there's, there's, uh, there's the sort of general one and then there are some targeted ones there. Um, I don't know. I, I don't listen to the targeted ones, so I don't know exactly what genres they're covering. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, when I was first starting this podcast, I was really, really surprised, like looking at all the other categories of podcasts because like there were probably over 20 podcasts just about like aviation. And I, I was yeah, really surprised. The, I was like, what? The thing with the podcast is, you know, you don't need, I mean, you don't need much of an audience. Um, so um, I guess people have used the term narrow casting um, uh, to refer to this where uh, you know, when, 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 when audio content was something that you, you, you were putting over radio waves or, 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 or broad, you know, broadcasting, as it were, mm-hmm. um, since everybody was going to be hearing kind of the same content, you had to choose content that was uh, applicable to a general audience. But uh, in the modern media framework, you can do narrow casting, where you you put something out and you know only the people who are actually interested will find it and will listen to it so yeah you can have lots of people talking about something narrow like you know aviation um and and you know the people who are interested will find it and yeah you know the rest of us will be blissfully ignorant that these things even exist and (laughs) it doesn't matter because the people who, who want to consume it have found it right yeah and that's kind of the beauty of podcasts i I really enjoy them because you could really, yeah. you really, well, I guess in the internet in general, you could pretty much find whatever you, whatever you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a huge, you know, cultural change from, you know, uh, when I was a kid, um, right. Because I didn't really get access to the internet until I was in college. Um, uh, and it was still, you know, that was internet 1.0. Um, so there wasn't as much, not nearly as much content, um, as nowadays, you know, search engines took a while to come around so you could really find things. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, specialty interests are now things that you can find your, you can find your people, you can find your tribe. Um, if you're interested in something very specific, there are probably, you know, there's, it's a big planet. There are probably a few hundred or more people out there who have a similar interest, you can find them and, and you can share content with them. Yeah. That's no what it is. That's awesome to me. And yeah, you can make, you can pick a, you can make a pretty um, closely knit community, just bonding over something really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I guess speaking of, so I, I know you told me you were into crossword puzzles, but I think we kind of got ran out of time last time we were talking about it. Are there any, do they have like online competitions? Um, yeah, right now because of the pandemic. So yeah. the, um, the, the biggest crossword tournament in the U.S. is called the American Crossword Puzzle Tournament. 
Um, I've attended that many times. Um, so they have it this year? Uh, they're having, so that last year they ended up canceling it. This year they're having it, but they're having it as, as a virtual event. So the, um, everything, everybody is going to be doing it online and the, the top competitors are going to be doing it, you know, um, with their videos turned on. So people will be watching them solve. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, so like everything else, that kind of event had to adapt to online. So they're using some online platform where you, you know, you solve the puzzle um, by you know, typing in on a computer. Um, I mean, lots of people do solve like the New York Times crossword puzzle online. Um, right. yeah. That's been true. I mean, they, they've had the crossword puzzle available online for a long time now. And uh, they've, they've updated the app, the, the apps that you use through the website. And I think probably most people by now are solving it through the, the through their through the website rather or, or the app on a phone or or, or, or some other device rather than uh, on a physical copy of the newspaper or even printing it out. Um, so because it's it's convenient. Um, right. uh, uh, How would the uh, yeah? So there are some so all comp crossword competitions typically. Uh, most of them were done in on paper in, in person, but they've had to adapt to the pandemic just like everything else. Mm -hmm. I, I guess, well, I mean, I've, there were a couple of events that I wanted to go to, not specifically competition type stuff, but like conventions, which are on like online, it's, it's really different. Like they're trying to, you still have all the same panels and all the same performances and whatever. Mm -hmm. I think the meeting people is such a huge part that the convention is just it's just completely different it's not yeah we haven't got great workarounds for that i mean i know there are platforms that people have, have tried to use to kind of simulate the experience of being in a physical space and talking to a, of people just that you're standing next to mm -hmm. um um there are there are a few platforms that are available that try to that try to reproduce this so. I've used one or two of them, um, but you know, it's it's still looking at people in a box on a screen. Uh, yeah. It's it's still it, it's still quite limited. So um, yeah, I imagine uh, you know once once travel restrictions loosen up, um, a lot of the you know all the, a lot of the in person events that w that used to happen will just go back to the way they were before, possibly with some content available online for people who can't get there. Um, so we might see some hybridization. Um, uh, like I know some research math conferences, you know, um, ha um, have discussed the possibility of, well, you know, is there some way to make some of the content available for people who aren't there in person? Well, you can record lectures, but yeah, yeah like the informal back and forth um, how much of that can you make available to people who haven't, who weren't able to physically go there? Um, right. And well, obviously not all of it, but you'd like to have, you'd like to strike some balance. Like, yeah. Obviously it's a much richer experience if you can, if you can attend in person, but you know, it's not, not everybody is going to be able to attend in person for you know, reasons of finances or, you know, potentially, you know, political restrictions, some places you can't, people, you can't travel, um, you know, if, if there are political disputes or, or um, you know, maybe you don't want to travel as much because you worry about climate change. Um, so there needs to be some middle ground, but definitely there's, there is a, there is still a need. The, the, one of the things that we've learned um, from the pandemic is um, for all the promise people have, uh, uh, people have, especially, you know, people who make uh, software that supports online collaboration, like Zoom, uh, for all the promises that have been made about uh, the use of, of, of online collaboration tools, um, there's still a lot of limitations. Um, and there's still a lot that works better when people can actually gather in person. Yeah. Well, I guess speaking of while you were while you were talking about that, I was thinking, have so have you ever used VR? I have not actually. That is not something that I've done much experimentation with. 
Um, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a little concerned that I might get, you know, motion sick <laughs> from oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I guess that maybe that just takes some getting used to, but I've never really tried it, no. Oh, okay. No, it's, it's a really surreal experience, I, I guess. I, our school, um, like, fundraised one so that, that we were able to get one at our high school. Cool. Which is really cool. But, like, like, when you use it, it's really, I don't know, it's, it's immersive in a weird way because, like, I don't know, it's, it's weird to describe. But maybe that could be a way. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess the idea is that you would then have then like multiple people would interact within the VR environment, even though they're potentially in different locations. Yeah. Like like all those sci-fi movies that have the same exact premise. <laughs> yeah. The holodeck. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> like, like being on the holodeck. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, I don't know. That would be interesting. And probably not too far off, I think. But... Yeah, that would be cool. I don't know too much about it though. Yeah, I mean, people have discussed like one of the one of the areas that people have discussed, um, you know, the, the the premise, the benefits of of using remote technology is of course education. You know, are we all are, you know are 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 universities, uh, you know, physical in person uh, teaching at a university is that still something that makes sense? And well. Um, I don't know about I don't know about anybody else, but my, certainly my impression is that you know most people involved with education on either side um, would really like to get back to having classes in person. Yes. Um, you know, there's there is some there is some there are again there are some benefits to um, to what we've been forced to do with remote education. I think uh, the you know. Forcing everybody to forcing all the professors to learn how to use recording equipment, you know, may pay some dividends later. Um, just in terms of, you know, having content available, you know, like having lectures recorded so that students can watch them again, is a good thing. Um, and it's not something that that lots of us would have, have bothered to learn how to do had we not been forced to. Um, but, you know not having the opportunity to interact, you know, have office hours in person or, or, you know, for students to not be able to collaborate easily in person. I, I think that, 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 that's, that's very disruptive. I mean, like part of the premise of having a, a campus is for students to, to interact with each other. Um, and a lot, that's, I feel like, uh, very, very much disrupted in the, in the current environment, especially for students who, um, you know, started uh, in a new environment, like started high school or started university, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, haven't met their classmates. <laughs> Look, that's on screens. Like, but you don't really, you don't really build connections that way. Yeah, I, I have some, I have some classmates that I talk to somewhat frequently, and I don't even know what they look like. It's, it's weird. <laughs> So you don't you don't use like Zoom with cameras on to to, inter to interact with them. You're using other channels like mm. Discord or something. Well, um, I have with a couple of my friends. We've met up on here or in other places like online. But uh, like some people, you'll meet through like Discord or something else, and and it's just text, you know. Mm -hmm. And yeah, or maybe you can do a voice call. Maybe, but most people aren't too inclined to show their face or their voice. And it's, it's, it's really weird. I don't know. That's been really interesting for me as a, you know, teaching a class. Oh, um, yeah. That, that, you know, I have, okay, so when I teach my lectures, because I'm recording a lecture, I set it up so that, um, you know, I'm the only one uh, talking. Um, and that's fine. I kind of got used to that. But I'll have office hours. And people don't turn their camera on for office hours. That I find a little bit weird. No, for most students will not turn their cameras on when they're coming to office hours. I, just a couple of them will. Um, That's interesting. And I mean, I can imagine. That, I, I can imagine why they might not. I mean, they're they're probably you know living in in some. Uh, they're, they're probably in some environment where you know the camera is going to pick up everything behind them, and maybe they don't you know want to broadcast their bedroom. Um, or, or, you know, so I, I get it, but yeah. it's, it's still a little, 
disconcerting to have had all these students where the only the only sense I have of what they look like is their photos you know, <laughs> that I get from the registrar. Um, so I've been, you know, teaching these students for a whole term and I only have a, a you know, a, a still photo of them that possibly is not even current. Mm, wow. that, has, that has been particularly uh, challenging, but you don't, you, you really, you don't really get to know students well, well that way if you can't put, I mean, I have enough trouble putting names to faces when we're in person, when I don't have the faces. <laughs> oh, right, yeah, you only have one. Uh, that that is strange well do you find that there's i know you said that there people aren't turning their cameras on but are are there less people compared to in person because i well, feel like it's more i have a little bit trouble of, of trouble judging that because the class the, the the uh the classes that i've been teaching so far are actually classes i haven't taught at ucsd before um uh, so I don't have a baseline, so I can, I, so, mm. it, it, but if I compare to, you know, other classes of a similar sort, like if I compare uh, the cryptography class from last term with other uh, upper division undergraduate math courses that I've taught, like 100 algebra, or, or I teach a math software class, um, yeah, I would have, I would typically have anywhere from, three to like 10 people in my office at a time. I mean, like spilling out into the hallway um, <laughs> uh, for office hours. And, you know, the only, the only time I had more than two students at a time for office hours was, this, was the very last, very last week when we were doing final projects, when mm -hmm. I think I got up to maybe five. Um, oh, wow, record, record setting. <laughs> yeah, but... Uh, so uh, again, I can't compare like for like because I, it's not a class I've taught before in person, but mm. my guess is that I would have had more students coming in person. Um, yeah. Like, like in theory, it should be more accessible, I suppose. I mean, because- Yeah, because in principle, it's just you turn on, a, you just turn on your Zoom and, and <laughs> there, you don't have to cross campus. You don't have to, I mean, you can leave your camera off if you want. And, and then, you know, in that, in that sense, it's sort of uh, easier psychologically than, you know, actually walking into a professor's office. That can be pretty intimidating. Mm. Um, you know, showing up in a Zoom with your camera off and just uh, even, I mean, you know, even just showing up and working, like not turning on your phone, your camera or your microphone, that that's a that's a pretty low bar and students weren't even doing that mm -hmm. i i do that sometimes well I'll, I'll just show up to office hours see what other questions anyone else has and i don't know just sit there sometimes with my camera on but sometimes it, it's really it's a different atmosphere you know mm -hmm. like like that would be okay i guess if i went to the actual i mean yeah it's perfectly it's perfectly okay for in-person office hours to just come and sit and listen mm -hmm. um and and not and not be asking questions that's completely fine um, and, student, and students will do that. Uh, they'll come or may, you know, maybe they'll come in a group where one of them has a question and the others just want to hear the answer. Or, or you know, sometimes somebody will just come because you know, they, they're going to work on the problem set and they wanna, just want to hear what, or maybe they haven't worked on it yet. And they want to hear some of the issues that, that are going to come up so that they don't have to ask the same question later. Mm. You know, and, but you know, so there, there wasn't as much of that going on. As I yeah. would have expected. Well, at least on my end, I can tell you it, it, it feels a little bit weird because you show up, like like that's definitely something I would do, but I would show up to, I don't know, Zoom office hours or whatever. But I, it's, it's almost like I take up too much space, uh, if that makes sense. Like there's, if there's only one other person in there and then I'm just sitting there <laughs> with my, my little box that's not little, it's, I don't know. It's, well, it, it actually, yeah, it technically, it, it, it doesn't take up space. Like when I set up my Zoom, I have it so that the non-video participants are not showing up in boxes. Mm. So all that's happening is they're showing up in the participant list. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, right. I'm not seeing tile. I'm not seeing empty tiles for people who don't have their video turned on. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, I, that's I, an option you can change, but of course you don't know what the person on the other end is doing. But I, I tend to do that when I'm have, when I have a, especially if it's if if it's a large group, like if if it's for a seminar or something, when there are like okay, so we have we have research seminars in the math department, and of course mm-hmm. we've been doing them online because it's the pandemic. Um, so we'll have you know 25 people joining, uh, including lots of graduate students. Um, and most people will, will turn off their camera. Um, usually it's the speaker and you know, the host and maybe a couple of other people will, will turn cameras on. Um, you know, it's good to have a couple of people with cameras on so the speaker gets some visual feedback um, you know, so, they, so that they know that they're, they haven't been disconnected, for example. Right. Um, if somebody is still reacting to them, they know that they should keep going. Um, uh, but yeah, most people will turn their cameras off to you know save bandwidth and 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 also, um, you know, I, you know certainly speaking speaking when I when I'm sitting in a seminar different seminar like one that I'm not hosting, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'll usually have my camera turned off um, because I might not even be standing in front of the computer. I might you know step out to to you know refresh my my teacup or or. Um, or, you know, if the, if the doorbell rings and I have to bring in a, a grocery order <laughs> yeah, yeah. because that happens in, in, in this environment. Um, well, I, I guess speaking of, how did, it, how did it go? I remember you mentioned you were having a seminar yesterday in Spanish. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, that was exciting. Uh, kind of terrifying. <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was my first time giving a talk in Spanish. Um, I started attending this seminar in Spanish when the pandemic started. So one of the things that happened when the pandemic started is that everybody uh, put their seminars online and a few places like we put out, we made our seminar publicly available online. I mean, we got quite a lot of people from outside San Diego. We had people from the East coast, people from Europe, people from Asia, we had people from all over attending the seminar. Um, But, and of course, you know, lots of other seminars uh, got put online and, and uh, uh, somebody who's actually, one of my collaborators actually put together a website called researchseminars.org um, where people can post uh, seminar listings, um, especially things that are open to the public so that you can sort of find out what's, what seminars are available. And so, you know, I, could go, I would go through and I would see, oh, there's a seminar at, you know, Columbia or the seminar at Princeton that I'm interested in. And then um, one of the seminars that got created early on in the pandemic was this thing called the Latin American Number Theory Seminar, which was, um, I think the organizers are in Uruguay. Um, there's a couple in Argentina. Um, there might be others, I don't remember. Um, so they have a seminar. Um, there might be one in Chile. Um, so they have a seminar uh, that's in Spanish um, on number theory. Um, and uh, since, you know, that's both my topic and it's a language I can understand and, you know, wanted to sort of uh, brush up on, I, um, I started attending the seminar. Um, and at some point, uh, you know, they noticed that somebody who wasn't obviously a Spanish speaker was attending the seminar um, and asked if I was interested in giving a talk. And I thought about it for a long time. And eventually I said, okay, uh, I, I gave this talk. Mm. But uh, yeah, it, it took a lot of preparation. Uh, giving a talk in, in not your first language um, and not a language that you use on a regular basis either. Mm. Um, took some it took some preparation. I mean, I I was giving a talk that I had given a version of in English. So I started with the English version of the talk and hit it with Google Translate to see what happened. And that worked okay, but of course it wasn't enough. It, I had to clean up a bunch of things. But yeah. It definitely made it much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that, then since I had a kind of prepared text um, and slides um, to, to give the talk, that made it easier to actually give the talk because a lot of the talk was me saying things that were written down already. Yeah, and, and I guess you had covered the topic before in previous. Yeah, and of course the material is material. I mean, not only had I presented the material before, but of course I had worked on the research as well. Yeah, right. Presenting, um, a theorem um, uh, that I had talked about in other venues and, and had even had the chance to talk about with a reporter or two um, mm-hmm. because it's a, it's, a, 
it's actually a, it, it comes down to something quite elementary. It's a sort of state. It's a result in Euclidean geometry. Um, so I, I can even state the theorem for you if you want. Um, so what we did was we, we, we classified all the ways that you could draw lines in three-dimensional space so that any two lines um, make an angle, which is a rational number of degrees, so like 90 degrees or 60 degrees or okay. seven degrees. Wait, um, did you say three intersecting lines or what? Uh, any number of intersecting, any number of lines. Say they all go through a common point just so I can measure angles that way. Uh -huh. So I say I take a, a bunch of lines through the origin. So if you pick a coordinate system. Um, but the condition that I want to impose is that any two lines make a rational angle. Okay. And so the problem is, can you classify all the ways this can happen? And it turns out you can. Um, you can describe sort of the, well, what you describe are the sort of maximal configurations where you know, you, you, if you take all, if you have a configuration like this, you can take lines out and it doesn't hurt you. So you really only need to figure out all the ways you can sort of put a bunch of lines together like this so that you have no room to add any more. So you describe all of those configurations and, and those turn out to have a, a lot of interesting geometric properties. There are some ones that come from really funny geometric shapes. Um, but you know, proving that you've you've got all of them is is is, is pretty non-trivial. So there, there's a lot of okay. there's a back and forth between there's there's sort of an algorithm that in principle works, but it's not feasible. So there's a back and forth between theory and and computer calculations um, to get this done. Mm, yeah, I I was wondering what what um, actual math researchers' opinions were on algorithmic like based software for proofs. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of become indispensable. I mean, the, the, the most famous, I think the first really famous example of using a computer to prove a theorem was the four color theorem, right? So that happened in the 1970s, I think. So quite early in the, in the era of computers, um, right? The four color problem was, uh, you know, about, I guess it was originally formulated in terms of you had maps um, where you would shade each country in a different in a color, and you wanted different uh, countries that were adjacent to have different colors so that you could see the border between them. Um, it didn't matter if they touched the corner because you would see that. But if they had an edge in common, you wanted those to be uh, distinguishable. Um, and you know, at some point, somebody discovered that they they'd always seemed to be possible to draw maps with only four colors. Um, and then somebody tried to prove this in the 19th century and, and it turned out there was a mistake, which was only discovered 10 years later. And then this problem became a notorious open problem for much of the 20th century. And finally, it took a computerist-assisted proof in the 1970s to straighten it out. Um, and, and once that happened, I think that sort of opened the doors to, to computer-assisted mathematics. People really got used to the idea that you know, some mathematical proofs are complicated enough that you, you shouldn't trust the human brain to, to check all the steps. You should, you should somehow automate this. Um, and so now you have lots of examples. Just, I think I mentioned a few in my talk. So there's, there's one called the Kepler conjecture, which is about the optimal way to, to pack spheres in three-dimensional space. That was resolved by a computer-assisted proof. Um, there's a, there was an old problem about the, when the Rubik's Cube came out um, back in, I guess it was the early 1980s, um, right? The Rubik's Cube was a huge thing back when we didn't have the internet. <laughs> you know, people got, got obsessed with it. Um, and so one of the questions people asked was, well, if you start with an arbitrary position of a Rubik's Cube, how many, what is the minimum number of moves that, will guarantee, that is guaranteed uh, to be sufficient to, un to unscramble it, no matter where you start? So what is the worst case for the, for the number of moves that you need to take? Um, and so it was eventually proved by a computer-assisted argument that, that you can always do it in at most 20 steps. Um, um, this is sometimes, it's, this problem is sometimes called the problem of God's algorithm because if like, if an omniscient being um, is solving Rubik's cube, what is the minimum number of steps that the omniscient being would take? If you actually try to, do Rubik's cube using a um, a human understandable algorithm. Typically, you use more steps. 
uh, unless you're a uh, <laughs> unless you're a sport speed solver, in which case you really try to optimize it. Uh, but uh, yeah, and there are other examples like this where the um, the proofs are, are are sufficiently complex uh, that you you really want to use uh, computer tools to verify steps. But you really have to distinguish between you know calculations that give an answer that seems to be the correct answer versus calculations that actually give a proof. So for example, in this this came up in our work, it also came up with the Kepler conjecture. Right, you're, you're doing computations involving real numbers. Um, real numbers, when you try to write down a real number, typically it has an infinite decimal expansion. Like pi is an infinite decimal expansion. Uh, that's not something you can represent on a computer because a computer has a finite amount of space uh, to keep track of things. So you don't keep track of an infinite number of decimal digits, you truncate it and, and you round things off, um, which is all well and good in real life, but when you're trying to prove a mathematical theorem, you want a proof that rounding things off didn't cause an error somewhere yeah. down the line. And so you actually have to keep track of how much have you rounded things off and is that enough to really cause a problem? So when we were doing our calculations, some of our calculations uh, we would run with real numbers on the computer um, and they were sufficiently on the edge that we said, okay, we can't guarantee that these calculations were error-free. We're going to do them again with many more digits, and it's going to take longer, but mm -hmm. we're going to do that just to make, just so that we can give an, an airtight proof that, there, that no errors have contributed to the result we're seeing. Okay, so it sounds like there's like a sort of like a confidence interval then or something? Yeah, I, I, well, for math, right, it, it, there is, but for math, math, for mathematicians, the confidence interval has to be like absolutely 100%. Like, yeah, okay, that, that would make sense. <laughs> so mathematicians want, you know, not beyond a reasonable doubt, but beyond, you know, uh, any doubt, even if it's not reasonable. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I guess that would make sense why. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a difference of styles between, you know, working in, 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 a, in a subject where, you know, you'll get some sort of feedback on whether something, whether there was an error in something um, versus, I mean, in mathematics, we write, ultimately, most of the things we're, we're doing as mathematicians involve proving results. So, so we're sort of, we have this notion of absolute proof. Um, and, you know, we're trying to, we're not, we're trying to something, we're trying not just to approximate absolute proof, but to actually, you know, achieve absolute proof. But, and you can do that. Which and maybe it's a little surprising that you can actually do that, but it it takes some it takes some work. Right. So maybe the, the takeaway is not that we're is, is not that we're being picky, is that we're we're actually able to achieve the mathematical standard of absolute proof, even though we're using computers in the calculation. Right, right. But it sounds like it sounds like using a computer is not as easy as just inputting your problem and having it test every solution. Yeah, it's not just a matter of uh, start the computer, ask it to tell you the answer is, you, you, you get the answer, or you say you accept it. You know, the, the, there's, a, there's more back and forth between the, um, you know, the, 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 the end user and essentially the programmer, whoever's sort of sitting on the other side running the software, the, the, you know, there's, um, you know, the, the person, you know, writing the software um, has a higher degree of responsibility when, when the outcome that's desired is a mathematical proof. Often software packages will um, allow you to choose whether or not you want to insist on that standard. So if you um, say, say you're trying to figure out whether some number is prime because it's a cryptography application, something, you want to do RSA. So you, 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 you type in a big number, you ask computer, is it prime? Um, and you can typically ask for, is it, is it prime probably, or is it prime with a proof? And um, if you ask for, is it, a, is it a prime probably, it will do things like the Fermat test and, and, and other um, efficient tests for primality. And if it passes all the tests, it'll say, okay, this is, it's gotta be prime. 
It's just gotta be. Uh, like, it, you know, the chance of it not being fine is like one in, you know, two to the hundred or something, uh, which is great uh, unless you're a mathematician and you want to prove for some reason, um, in which case you, you, you go back and you say, okay, now this time I want you to prove it for me. Uh, and then it'll run a different algorithm, which takes much longer, but at the end, it'll spit back out something that actually gives you a proof. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then uh, that definitely take, I, I would imagine it would take a very long time. <laughs> it depends on the situation. For primality testing, it's, it's not so bad. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely the case that if you're trying to find a prime number, you should do this probabilistic thing first. Um, you, that's not you should you should pre-screen your candidates using the fast probably correct probably correct algorithm, mm -hmm. and then once you're done with that, once you have candidates, then you can pass them over to the provable uh, test if you really want mathematical level of confidence. Um, so if you're, for example, if you're you know if you're submitting something for a um, you know, say the, say the government is, is, is doing a competition about cryptography standards and you want to propose using, you know, RSA with a particular uh, modular, you know, some particular prime for elliptic curve cryptography or something, um, you know, then you would probably run the mathematical proof because you want to submit the mathematical proof to the competition. Um, but you know, if you're just using it for real life, probably, you know, the two to the two to 100, uh, one, you know, the one over two to 100 level of confidence is probably good enough. Yeah, yeah. There's always that thing between, or there's always that balance between, um, I guess, practicality and yeah. I mean, part of the point of the mathematical proof, it means that you don't have to go back later and kind of increase the level of confidence. Because, okay, maybe, uh, you, 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 you do something that will give you some degree of confidence, but if people end up using it over and over again, maybe eventually somebody wants more confidence. And well, if you've done a mathematical proof, then you don't have to go back and do that, that check for more confidence. Mm. So sort of have sort of infinite level of confidence to begin with. Yeah, that's true. Hmm. And I guess that would, that would be pretty, I think we, I think we talked about a lot about that a lot. And I think that that would be interesting to talk about in, in another time, but it looks like we're reaching about the hour. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to bring up real quick? No, I think we, we talked about plenty already. I think yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot to go over through here. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on today. I really oh, appreciate my it. I, I think it was pretty, it was pretty fun talking, so. I enjoyed it. Yeah. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it, you listeners out there. And we will see you next week, 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. See you guys.